going to talk about various Purim practices. Um, Purim has four weeks, so what are they? Gary the Gala. Right. Getting Shafmana. Right. Gala Shafmana. Getting to the four. Suda. Yeah. Correct. Okay, now you can go on. Um, no, you can't go on. So, I want to talk about them sort of in sequence, or we'll see. I don't know exactly how to divide it because I also want to spend some time talking about the things that are not mixed of for him. Um, right? The drinking, the like, noise making, general rabble rousing, certain sort of weird practices that have Purnhora, things that have come up over time. There's, I'm doing a little bit of research for my silver on this and for his um, Purn commentary or McGill commentary, right? But there's, there's certain things that are even like stranger than that that are not just like general wildness, but like they're accustomed to wear. Shotnays, where there was. Uh-huh. Like so I don't know if custom or fact, everything, right. everything is upside head. down. Right. So that, that's sort of just something to keep in the back of our, our minds, that that is like the, that's a thing that happens on Purim. I think we'll see it a little bit in each of these, each of the other mitzvot as well, certainly in the way they're discussed. But today I wanted to start with the Megillah, because that's sort of like the or mitzvah. That's the mitzvah that's the source of all the others. So, um, you know, I don't know if this is like comprehensive, it's just a few somewhat interesting points in the whole discussion thereof. Thank you. Other particular interests that come up, we can talk about them, if I know the answer, or I can find it out for next time. Um, so I just wanted to start, sort of, with the, this all begins in Esther chapter 9, it does not, whatever. That's sort of where the, the needs vote come in. Um, I gave a longer second here, but Chapter um, 9 is like the one that kind of always seems kind of repetitive and it's really long and I was like, really? Did you just read that? Is that happening again? I don't know, that's at least how I always feel about chapter 9. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the weird drawn out conclusion. Chapter 9. Um, right, so they kill the sons of Helen and then they fight extra in Shushan and the king says, okay, um, right, verse 15, right, the Jews gather our enemies up on the 14th day in Shusha. Um, but the people in the provinces, um, you know, they didn't take the spoil, whatever. Um, when did they rest? When did they whatever? They had a full discussion. Let us look really at, um, starting in verse 19, right? Okay, now you deem. Haparazim, Hayashvim Ba'arei Haparazot, Osim, Et Yom Arba Asar Lachodesh Adar Simcha Umishteh Biyom Toh Umishloch Manot Right? So for the people who live not in Shushan, not in the city, um, since their fighting ended on the 13th and the 14th, well, their resting day, they do the 14th as the day of what? Feasting and marrying. Right. And sending stuff to each other. Right. Which seems like it's maybe part of it. It's an instantiation of the other things, general feasting and merriment. Um, and we stay here, it's right, simcha, we stay here, separate perhaps, we don't know why. It's not, perhaps it's not precise here, but sort of like, that, that's their holiday, and it's describing it, and Mishlach when it appears, right? And then Mordechai wrote all these things that, by Yichtov, Mordechai had Reim Ha'ela, by Yishlach, Sparim, and Tlach Ha'yudim, Sher B'chol, Medino, Shemelech HaChashayosh, HaKrobim, Baharachokim. Right, that they do every day of Purim. They do Purim every year. 
Uh, it does seem like historically there were places where they really had two days of Purim because they talk about the first day of Purim and the second day of Purim where it, it didn't quite shake out as like either they kept the 14th or the 15th but they kind of had like both. Um, Right, those are the days that the Jews rested. Where it was a whole reversal to make them days of feasts and happiness. Right, it's kind of interesting because right, the description of what the people actually did did not include much know that you and the description of Mordechai saying keep doing what you're doing doesn't include much about that meaning. So you get, a, you get a sense of like a little nudge in a certain direction there, which is a good direction um, for it. Um, it's kind of interesting though, right? So they did it that one year. Mordechai said, hey, keep doing this. And they accepted to do it, right? Um, because Haman was so bad, and he tried to kill them. Um, right? Al came. Then this weird sort of obscure place, right? So they accepted for themselves and for all generations to do these days, right, as described presumably for um, and that in fact they are done out all the time, says the Megillah. Um, Esther wrote something, perhaps. So, okay, I think that that's, that's sort of enough. So that's that's the, the verses that are the source for these four practices. But I guess it's sort of one a thing that does not really come up in the halacha discussion, but something to kind of think of is like, well, it does come up in the halacha discussion, but not in my halacha discussion, I guess you say, right? What is the actual status of these things, right? What makes them binding? Is it because Mordechai said so? Is it because they're written in the Megillah and the Megillah says so? Meaning sort of indirectly that Mordechai said so? Is it because the people accepted it upon themselves and it's like a custom? Sort of what is the, what is the source of saying you have to read the Megillah, right? So in these psukim, are the psukim just describing a pre-existing commitment? Are the psukim, do they, I mean, they're not psukim in the Torah, Right, they can't give you a mitzvah. Is it a mitzvah derabanan? Rambam calls it a mitzvah mitzvah sofrim, which is sort of like a phrase that people talk about a lot. What does Rambam mean by that? He uses it in, in various places, but it seems like it's sort of in between derabanan and deraita. Um, so that, that's sort of an interesting question based on that. Right? I mean, like we have this text; it's very explicit that there's supposed to be some sort of holiday, but it still doesn't quite tell us well what is that? What's the status of all that stuff? Um, but setting that aside for the moment, I want to talk today about the Megillah, the Megillah, that's me reading the Megillah, but the first question is just sort of, well, is there a mitzvah to read the Megillah? Right? Right, the mitzvah to read the Megillah is not mentioned in the Megillah. Right? The, the other mitzvah to read are mentioned in the Megillah. Right? What is, what is the status of the Megillah even? Um, so for that, we can turn to Talmud Bavli, verse number two. Um, Megillah 7b, all things here. And the translation is from Safaria. I don't know if you guys know about Safaria. I always like to just let people know about it. It's, I mean, it's a, it can be somewhat hit or miss. Safaria.org. Is, the theory is it's like a an open source Jewish text warehouse with translations, and so like it has some translations. They are of varying quality. It has most. Of, it has like Tanakh and Mishnah and Gemara. It, you know, I I for example, like when I make a source sheet like this, I usually put the source the translation that I do of the Shulchan Aruch onto Safaria also because like. Once I've done it, it's done. Why don't I just put it there? 
Um, so it'll have different translations? So different people are doing different things, and like I've seen things where I'm kind of like, oh, that doesn't look right to me. So I mean, like, it's all done just by people, so like any sort of open wiki sort of thing. It can be hit or miss, but it's kind of an interesting project. It's an interesting idea. It's, it's very ambitious in the sense that like they think that they're going to you know, sort of like democratize access to like all Jewish texts ever, which like I don't know if that's really going to happen, but um, it's a neat idea. They make it so. accessible to people who aren't really masters of Hebrew. Right. I mean, like, I bet it depends on the quality of the translation. Yeah. So I mean, it's just something. Just something. I feel like people, people who come here, it's something that they might also be interested in checking out at some right. point. Um, so yeah, and they have um, they have one of, in this case they have one of the only easily available cut and paste translations as opposed to other things that are in PDF and whatever. So, but I'm in Hebrew. You guys are both okay with Hebrew? Okay. I'm gonna read English. That's fine. But I mean, like, I will read and translate, um, and the English is there, and I think that that's, that works usually. Amar Rav Shmuel Bar or Shmuel Bar Yehuda said. Esther sent a message to the Chachamim. Right, establish me for the ages, meaning, right, like, make, make, right, make this holiday real. Meaning, like, just the fact that me and Mordechai said, like, hey, let's do this, doesn't do anything. In the rabbi's imagination, she needs the rabbis to say, yes, this is a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Right? They said, like, well, actually, like, this is not the best holiday because, like, this holiday kind of ends with us killing a bunch of non Jews. Maybe this is not the thing that we want to be talking about all the time. That's what it sounds like, right? Um, She's like, well, they already know, right? I'm already in the history books, so you don't have to worry about adding me, which is sort of ironic, even though. I mean, it's sort of funny from our perspective, because, like, who's reading First of all, it's not obvious. We don't, we don't seem to have those books, right, where she is written in the non Jewish history books. And, like, yeah, meaning even if we did, who's reading them? Um, but many people are reading the book of Esther. Anyways, right. So the, the upshot there seems to be that she wins and they will give up only the dura, whatever that means. They will make some sort of a perpetual acknowledgement of what happened, of her in some way. How it is perhaps remains a little bit unclear still. Right, so these people taught, and then there's this editorial aside, Bukule Seder Moed. Right, so we said Rav, Rabbi Chanina, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Chaviva. We have these four people, and then the Gemara says, actually, when we have that set of four people, and it says Rabbi Yochanan, it's not really Rabbi Yochanan; it's really Rabbi Yonatan. Okay. Kitavuni um, Right, not just establish my holiday, but write me down for the Torah. Meaning, what? Make it a law. Make it. Obligatory. Make it a law or incorporate me into the canon. I think that's right. right. Like write it in. Right. Incorporate, right. incorporate me into the written portion of our tradition. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there's this verse in Proverbs, did I write for you three times? Only three times, not four times. So there's something that can only be written three times, not four times. We'll see what it is in a second. Ashamat ulo mikra katub Ketov zod zikaron basefer. Does that sound familiar to anyone? The sivos ne Yehoshua. The chamal Hashem b'avalek midor dor. Right. So they're saying we used to think that something could only be written three times, but then we found this pasuk that we now we realize we can write it four times. So it's sort of 
Okay, Ketovzot, Masha Ketuvkan Mishneh Torah. Right, when it says Ketovzot, write this. It means what's written in Shemot and Mishneh Torah there is Deuteronomy, right? Zikaron, what is written in Nevi'im, i.e. the episode of Shaul and Agag. The Sefer, Masha Ketuv Megillah. And then we still have another word where we can add you to the canon as well, right? So they're saying, like, actually, if we think about it a little more broadly, right, the original answer is, no, we have no more space for any wars with Amalek in the Torah. Meaning, maybe, like, this is a perpetual struggle, why are you so special? Maybe, or maybe something else. And then the answer is, no, actually, there's room for one more. Yeah. You no, I, I just I can't figure out like what Mordechai takes care of and what Esther takes care of. I mean, the, she's the like historically. Know. Yeah, she she's the one that actually goes to the king. Mm-hmm. I mean, if so, why? How did the rabbis know like are, that they should communicate with Esther or should they be communicating with Mordechai? I mean, I think right. So first of all, in in chapter nine, even it's a little bit obscure, right? Mordechai writes something. Esther writes something. Um, Mordechai and Esther write certain things. So I think it's not clear. It is interesting that they're putting it in the, in the mouth of Esther, probably because for them, Mordechai is one of the rabbis, right? So it's sort of like, Mordechai is one of the rabbis. He has his own perspective from there. And she's saying, like, she as the one who really lived it more in some ways is saying, like, no, this is really important. Um, Right, so they, they find this extra verse that allows them to incorporate a fourth episode with Amalek into the written canon, and they say, fine, you can be incorporated. Um, sorry. Hello, no problem. Oh, there was no last week. This is a four-part class, so. Oh, okay, okay. That's great. You're just, you're not as late as thought, yes. Um... Right. Um, right, and then it shows this. Um, there's actually a machloket chachamim as to whether, in fact, that is the proper way to read this verse or not. Right. So there's one Tana says yes, there there is a fourth option here, and one Tana says no, there's really only three words here. Ketov zot zikaron b'sefer. Right. Ketov zot is one. Zikaron is two. B'sefer is three. We already used them all up. Right. So already we're preserving a Tanaitic opinion, which is the opinion of Rabbi Yeshua, which seems to say that, no, like, there is no space for Esther in the canon, right? Um, right, so then we have the following statement, Amar Yehuda Amar Shmuel, so these are Amorim, they say, Esther enametama et hayadayim, right, Esther, in this case, the book of Esther does not create impurity or transmit impurity to the hands, which means, anyone know? Right? It means that it's not part of canon, right? Holy books make your hands impure when you touch them. This is how, the, like, the, in all the discussions about canonization, this is the phrase it's used, which is sub kind of funny, but, right, holy books make your hand impure when you touch them, so if it doesn't make your hands impure, it means that it's just a regular book, it's not a holy book. Um, right, so when you say, Esther enam it means Esther does not, is not part of the canon. Um, well, does that imply that Shmuel thinks that Esther was not even written with any sort of divine inspiration, right? If it's not part of, if it was divinely inspired, it should be part of the canon. Ergo, if it's not part of the canon, it's probably not divinely inspired. But we know that Shmuel does think that Esther was divinely inspired, so how can we reconcile these two opinions of Shmuel? Um, 
That's what the Gemara is getting, right? Right. They're saying actually no, like one does not apply the other. Something could be divinely inspired, that doesn't mean that it needs to be part of the written canon. Which is kind of interesting, right? The idea that like there's some this is sort of in direct contrast actually to a different grammar that speaks about Esther as sort of quintessentially written here thing. There's something oral about the Esther story potentially. It doesn't have to be written part of the canon in order to be like part of our collective story or whatever. I mean it's, one might even read this as saying that like you're supposed to say Esther for memory every time. Or like, or you can read it, but it's not like actually part of the canon. Um, anyway. Metive. Metive means we have a contradiction for that. Rabbi Meir Omer, Kohelat Enamatamate Daim, Machlok Bashir Shirim. Right, Rabbi Meir says Ecclesiastes is not part of the canon, and Shir Shirim is the subject of a dispute, where Rabbi Yossi says it is, and, oh, and Rabbi Yossi says Shir Shirim is part of the canon, but there is a dispute about Kohelet. Rabbi Shimon says Kohelet is Nikule Beit Shammai, whether they think it is not part of the canon, Nikhumer Beit Hillel, about Rut Bashir Shirim Be'Esther Metamidatayadayim, right? So basically, the contradiction here is this last line, right? Where everybody seems to agree that Esther is Metamidatayadayim, it is part of the canon, so how can Rabbi Huda Amar Shmuel earlier have said Esther is not part of the canon, right? Huda Amar Kabushua, no, actually, well, that's fine, but everybody in this Brighta that we just quoted says it is part of the canon, but we told you before that there's actually a Mahogan about whether there's like more space for more Amalekite wars, and so like, it's basically keeping this Mahogan alive, right? The whole, the whole thing here going on in this Gemara is, um, right, that like, there's two sides to the question of is Esther really part of the canon? And in some ways this is sort of like, even now, you can read Esther in two ways, right? You can read it as a just a sort of like a farce or a comedy or whatever, you can read it as like every time it says Hamelech, it's really God, and all this stuff, sort of like these hidden miracles. Um, and in some ways, that, I think that's sort of like a nice background to this whole exploration of Purim. A lot of the Purim practices are going to be kind of like, well, what is it? Is it just a drinking party? Is there some meaning there, right? Um, well, it's also really interesting to me because mm-hmm. My brain doesn't really work well with Talmud. Like, I, I think I really have to really focus and train the way that I see things in the Talmudic way. Because in my mind, I would always just be asking myself about the content of the story and the significance of the story. And what is it there to teach us? And that's how we would determine what we're supposed to do with it. And in this context, they're not talking about that at all. They're talking about, is there a rule that you can do something three times versus four times? So if we have room for it, we can theoretically stick it in, but we're not sure. And then if we do think about sticking it in, is it divinely inspired? Is it something that makes your hands dirty or is it not? Like how does it level with the other books? And that's just so amazing to me because these are all technical aspects of this question, but it's not, uh, to me, a question that has to do with the significance of the document itself. Do you right. know what I mean? But I think some are some are. The, the defying the hand is sort of an interesting question, because like, really, what does that have to do with the, the content? I think sometimes, right, when, you, when they approach the question from like, how many wars with Amalek, or how many mentions of Amalek are we supposed to have, I think that that actually like, it's technical, but it's also not, right? I mean, like, it's not, like, obvious that that verse is talking about Esther. It seems like the de- when Esther says, write me down, they're like, they're kind of, the default is like, oh, we're not really doing that anymore, right? And then they're like, well, maybe we can find a hook, right? So they're looking for a hook, and it's interesting to see where they go, that they go to this sort of, like, 
how do you hook this into the canon? By hooking it onto some theme that's already there. Uh-huh. Right? Um, like, this is not a new story, this is a continuation of an older story, and that's why we can kind of put it in there. So in some ways I think that it is responsive to the content, it's just not in a direct way. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the last book in the canon? I mean, do we have any idea of what order they accepted things in? Well, listen, according to this record that we just read, it sounds like there was debate about Ecclesiastes after there was debate about Esther, arguably. Um, I would say, I don't know, I, I'm not prepared to say confidently either what scholars think or what the rabbis think is the last chronological book of the Torah. Um, but Esther is one of the last, for sure. Um, so let's skip the next. The next thing is just sort of this interesting thing. Well, how do you know that Esther is divinely inspired? It's trying to find all sorts of verses that, like, well, no person could have known that, so it must be that it was God who wrote it, which is sort of interesting because they're all kind of the kinds of things that, like, to us, like, a narrator would write even if, like, they're not 100% sure that it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's kind of interesting. Okay. Well, let's go to. Um, so that's sort of just, just at the outset, the fact that, like, it was not always obvious that Megillah was even part of the canon. Nevertheless, like by the time we get to the rabbinic period, we have a mitzvah to read the Megillah, right? The mitzvah, the Megillah, certainly, well, the rabbinic period is not super part of the canon, but there, there is this mitzvah to read it, right? It seems like it's a real thing, right? Um, so, in 4a in Megillah, right? But, but interestingly, not in the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah never says you must read the Megillah X times a day, whatever. It just sort of starts with like, they read the Megillah in these places, in these times, these places, and the other times, and sort of like a lot of laws about it, but it never formally sets out like, these are the Mitzvot of Purim, right? That's what, how you might expect the Mishnah on Megillah to start, it doesn't. In fact, like, as we'll see, the other Mitzvot of Purim are not really mentioned in the Megillah at all. They're mentioned in other Tanaitic statements that can kind of throw into the Gemara. Um, and where do we get the, um, the idea that it's one of the required Mitzvot for women? Where did that come in? We are about to see. Okay. Um, so there's a series of statements by Rabbi Shuvan Levi, we're going to have two out of three, because the, the middle one is kind of oh, off. Here we go. Right. Women are obligated in reading the Megillah, right. even they were in that miracle. This, this phrase appears elsewhere, it's sort of not necessarily the way one might want to speak about, even they, what does that mean, even they? I don't know, even women? Like, yeah, women were there. Fine. So women were included in the same miracle. It's also, I mean, sometimes octane, it, it could be read as not even they, but like especially they. That's so what that's what octane is. They mean to be, right, they say it about things where, right, here the deliverance came by a woman, right? Um, right, like if, if women aren't included in like the Esther holiday, where are they? Like they were significant, super significant in the story. Right. Um, right, Ramar Yeshuvah Levi, Yeshuvah Levi also said, Right, a person must read the Megillah at night and repeat it during the day. Based just on that phrasing, which one would you say is the primary reading, by the way? Reading at night. Right, it sounds like the reading at night from the way he says it, as we'll see a bit of the, the sort of the halachic thing. It becomes like um, that the daytime reading is actually the primary reading. Um, right? Right, God, I call out to you. This is from the um, chapter that is start which is connected in various places to Esther. Um, so say, right, I call out to you at night and during the day. What's interesting about this proof text? 
I mean, is that related to her going to, um, like, having the feast at night and the feast during the day? Do you know? When did she? What's the second one? Were they at different times of day? I'm thinking I mean, but in my mind, right. I'm thinking like, you know, the first one was a night party, and the second day was brunch. You know, maybe. <laughs> so that, I mean, I think there's a few things about interesting about this, the first text. I guess what to say, right? One is, um, right. That the the thing that Esther is saying, Esther, if, if we assume that that verse is said by her, right? The thing that she's saying, she's saying, I'm calling out to God, and we're saying that means reading the Megillah. Like we don't necessarily think of reading the Megillah as a form of prayer, right? That that's something to keep in the back of your head. We'll see a connect, another connection to that later. Um, and the other is that this verse is saying that you're not answering me, which is sort of a funny thing to put here because the whole point of Esther is like this last minute deliverance, or not actually so last minute, but sort of out of unexpected. Um, right. right, so they thought, well, maybe you just have to do something at night and during the day, right? You can read the Megillah at night and you can teach the law, like the Mishnah of Esther during the day, which again gives you a sense that, like, the Megillah itself is not necessarily, like, canonical. It's not, it's not at this point, like, a part of the Torah in the same way, right? It's interchangeable with, like, any other sort of text that has to do with Torah. Um, right. I can explain to you why you have to say the Megillah itself over again, not some other Torah related text, based on the statement of Rabbi Chia. Right. Um, explained it to me. I will go through this explanation and I'll repeat it. Right. Meaning that repeating is a way of learning. Um, right. Another statement. Same statement. But a different Right. I will not be silent, and I will continue to thank you. Right. So meaning, once is not enough. And again, right, the Megillah itself is sort of put in the form of something that's addressed to God. It's like standing in right. Um, and you say it again because you're actually very thankful. That's sort of the idea. And so, like it's a similar proof text that has different nuances, but this idea that the proof text for writing Sid and Megillah again comes from because we pray both during the day and at night, or because we pray repeatedly, is very interesting. That's something that we'll see later as to whether maybe the Megillah has an aspect of halal. Um, technically, right? Not just technically. Um, so, so far, right, we saw that women are obligated in Megillah. I'm not, actually, I'm not going to, did not intend at least to talk about the question of, like, women and Chiyu Megillah and being mostly men that's going to come up in a few things. It, it is, like, a whole discussion. I just feel like everybody wants to talk about that. And, like, you don't. No. <laughs> I mean, if people are particularly interested, I guess they can, but we'll just mention something. So, this part. idea that Megillah reading or hearing is actually equivalent to Tfilah, right? Mm-hmm. And so we pray more than once a day, so we can read Megillah more than once. Are other canons also treated as tefillah, as, as prayer? Well, I don't think that other forms of reading, I mean, saying to Hillen, yes, but that's a little separate. But like Megillah root? No, I mean, first of all, those things are not even spoke. Right. But right. no, not really. That's, it's sort of weird, because also it doesn't really match the content of the Megillah, right? At all. And there's nothing else where you'd have to read it twice. 
That's what right. I'm asking. Like, yeah, we don't no have any custom of reading any other book twice. Right. Okay, that's, that's that the question. Is it's only this book that yeah. we're supposed to be reading twice, but nothing, okay. That's what I was just yeah. making sure I didn't think there was. Right, and that's in some ways where this question comes from. Like, really fun, so you have to do something during the day and something at night. Like, it's almost like it's resisting, like, why would you read the same thing twice? And they're saying, because, like, when you are re- truly grateful, like, you can't get enough, right? Uh-huh. That's sort of the answer. It's kind of, it's, I don't know. Like we do when we pray, that's what they're right. saying. So like that, now we're applying that reasoning to this. Yeah. Um, right, so toast vote there. Um, just on this question of which is the primary reading. Um, so Tosfot cites the Gemara, which says Chayav Adam Nekrodet HaMegilah Balala Lishnotabiyom. Right, so you have to read it during at night and say it again during the day. Omer Ri, who's one of the famous Tosfots, or Ri Yitzchak, I think of Don Pierre, I think that's his full name. Everybody just calls him Ri. Da'af al Dav de Mevarech Zman Balala. Zman is a bracha that we all know that it's um, Shehachianu, right? Even though you say Shehachianu at night, right? When you read the Megillah, you have three three brachot at night, right? You say Al Mikra Megillah. And have Robert Rubin at the end, and then um, I think there's another one at the beginning. I forget. And you say Shehachianu, right? You go back and say it again during the day, which is weird because usually after you've done something once, you don't do it. And uh, like there's a whole discussion, right? On our holidays, when we have a two-day holiday, we do say Shehachianu on, on the second day, but that's because maybe it's really the first day, yada yada. Right? It's not because like you say it again for the second time you do something, um, right? But he's saying no, so he's going to give three reasons. First, di'ikar persume nisa havia bikriya diyamama, right? The daytime reading is really the one where it's the most publicized. I don't know if this is because notwithstanding the fact that everybody is obligated to go for both of them, not everybody actually went for both of them. Maybe it's because the other people on the street are then aware of it. Maybe it's because people bring their kids, right? But there's something about the, the daytime reading that's sort of the more public pronouncement in some way. Um, Ukranami Mashbakain, right, and then they say second proof, right? The verse itself also sounds that way. Right? He's going back to the first proof text which mentions daytime first. He's saying even though I'm gonna do it in the day, I'm also gonna do it at night. As the night is kind of secondary. Um, sorry. Right. Also, like the day is like the time for the real harvest, right? Like that's when you have the suda. Um, right. In fact, if you eat your perm suda at night, it doesn't even count. Um, right. Similarly, when Esther 9.28 says, right, the, these days of Purim are these karim v'nasim, they are mentioned and done. The mentioning of Purim, which here is like telling the story, is connected to doing, right? The practices of Purim and the mentioning of Purim should be at the same time, right? Right? Just as all the practices of Purim are really supposed to be on the day of Purim, not at night. So the main Megillah reading is during the day. So we have three proofs. One, that's when the biggest Pursum Hanes comes. Two, that matches the order of the first proof text, which mentions daytime first. And three, that's, we can tell that's the main part of Purim because of the other mitzvah. Um, Do we know if there was a tradition to read the Megillah and then immediately have the Seuda? 
this is something I'm actually looking into. Hopefully I will have more to say about that by the time we talk about the Suda. Um, it's an interesting question, right? Because there is now custom more to have it more at the end of the day. Right. And sort of, that's strange, actually. It's an unexpected. There's discussions about that because it's weird, right? Why would you start the Suda so that most of it is happening after the end of the um, So I don't know. This is the answer of what you do. Um, right, and what's, what does it matter, right? So this idea of whether it's, right, so his explanation that the daytime reading is the main reading is the explanation for why you say Shekhyanu twice. Incidentally, right, Sepharim don't say Shekhyanu twice, um, based on the Rambam. So, I, I don't think that that actually, in this case, I don't think that means that the Rambam thinks that it's not the main Megillah reading, he just thinks that you don't have to say it twice. Um, Meaning that there is an opinion in the Rishonim that the, actually really the nighttime is the main reading, but that doesn't seem to be really picked up by anybody particularly authoritative later on. Um, right? And as you see, right? Um, yeah, please. So you're obligated to hear the Megillah once, not twice. twice. So what does it matter? Why, why would you hear about the main, main reading if both of them are obligatory? Um, well, it, perhaps it matters for this question of whether you can say Shekhyanu again. Uh, it might matter for, like, if you could only do one, which one would you do? Though it's hard to imagine, like, when that would happen, but, like, I don't know, maybe you can kind of think of it. But if you're going, if you have to take an airplane during one of the times, right, which one should it be? I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, well, then you can't, you can't bring a McGill on an airplane or you can't read or whatever. I mean, you can construct right. some scenario where right. you have to choose between them. Um, Yeah, I think that those are sort of the main, okay. the main ways that it's relevant. Um, okay. So the Shulchan Aruch does codify this. You have to read it at night and go back and say it again during the day, just picking up on the language from the Gemara. Um, so here's another, we're just maybe a little run through of some laws about the Megillah. Um, right, the nature of the reading. Right, there, there is, there are potential differences between the nature of the daytime and the nighttime obligation that may be relevant. Also, whether men and women have the same obligation. This is already sort of like not in the at the Gemara level, but at sort of the later level, mm-hmm. the Rishonim level. Like maybe if the daytime is the main reading, <coughs> but it includes aspects other than whatever the baseline obligation is for women, then maybe that women can't can't be yotzei men, can't be motzi men during the day, but they could at night. There's an opposite opinion, which we will discuss a little bit more. In a bit. Um, so the Shulchan Aruch says as follows: Hakol chayavin b'kriyata. Everybody has to read it. Anashim v'nashim v'gerim v'avadim shulcharim. Right. Everybody has to read it. Men, women, converts, freed slaves. Freed slaves are basically have the status of converts, but it's like you get there by a different way. Mechanchin atek tamin, tamin likrota, and you teach the children to read it. Also, it's already kind of interesting that he has this here. He's going to mention it again later because like. It is in general true that you're supposed to teach children to do things, but the Shulchan Aruch doesn't always say, and you teach your children to do that, right? Um, so it seems like he's reflecting something that, like, you know, children are more involved in Purim than in general, mm-hmm. which is still true. Are there cases where converts and free slaves are not obligated to do certain things? And men and women are? I can't think of it. Or just men are? And well, no, not really. There's a few things, like, there's a discussion of whether, right, for example, I don't remember how it concludes, whether a convert can, can say the vidu vidu, sorry, mikrab bikuri, or whatever it's called, when you go to the temple, that's the, that's the basis of the Haggadah, where you say, like, and now I'm bringing my first fruits. 
um, because right, his ancestor was not Abraham, so we can't say that maybe. There are a few poten potentially some liturgical things where converts are not supposed to say or can't say them, um, but yeah, in general, right, Gerim and Abedim and Shukharim. Abedim and Shukharim are not Abedim, right? Regular, like, they are now Jews, so yeah, they're basically, in terms of obligations, generally have the same. So that also is sort of a strange formulation, you're right. Um, right, so, so see if two on page. Did the page numbers not come out? That's unfortunate. I find that like every time I switch computers, the page numbers disappear. Yeah. I don't know why. World's number two. Yes. Um, source number six. Right. Echad hakore echad Whether you or yourself are reading out loud or listening in hakore. You fulfilled the obligation. As long as the person you're listening to actually is obligated to read it, right? So, for example, if somebody who's not obligated, of which there are not that many people because basically all adults are obligated, but if the person was some sort of incapacitated adult or a minor, um, it doesn't count if you listen to them. Um, right? And some people say that women also cannot, even though women have an obligation, they can't make men fulfill their obligation impl implicitly because there's some difference in the level of obligation. Um, right? So this is the Ramaz gloss. Right? This is giving you a little clue as to what is the difference, right? Maybe men have an obligation to read and women only have an obligation to hear. And that's why even if the woman is actually reading, since her only mitzvah is to hear, she would still say the bracha of lishma megila, which I believe is what we did when I was in the Gresham in the mouth after high school. That was like the, the we had a woman's megila reading and the bracha was al lishma megila. Um, okay. Um, right, because she doesn't really have to read it, she just has to listen, and that's the same reason that she wouldn't be able to be mostly a man. Um, I am not really familiar with anybody who still does that. Still, but meaning I think that, like, just as a sociological observation, right, one of the things that happens when something somewhat new is happening is that, like, you try and do it in as conservative a way as possible. So, right, like, then they're like, we're taking into account the obligation, like, you know. If you say the bracha of Mishma Megillah, you're sort of taking as a given the opinion that women have a different level of obligation than men. So it sort of means like, well, we're not, you know, giving it the blessing. Right, you're not like pushing too far by having women read it if you're having them make a different bracha. But I, I haven't heard that in a while. I Meaning, I've been to several women's Megillah readings in various places since then. Um, certainly, Trisha, that's not what they say, but um, even in my previous show, I don't, I don't know. I will pay more attention this year. Okay. Right, so then we have all these people who don't actually fit into either category, or any possible category. Androgynous motsimi no veloshe no Right, so an androgynous can be motes, an androgynous is somebody who's considered like both male and female. I don't know what like contem contemporary medical category this would be. Right, but that, this is the idea of somebody who has, basically they have like external genitalia, but they sort of have characteristics of both. Right, so they can be motsi other people, other androgynous people, but not. Um, Either men or women, it sounds like. Just people or like perhaps that. certainly not men. Who identify like right. Um, right. So a tumtum is somebody who's considered to have like no gender, not both genders, but no gender. 
um, or somebody who's half slave, a feeling we know in no mozi, right? They can't even be mozi somebody like them. With the tumtum, it's because, right, what if the person is really a woman and the person, the other tumtum is really a man? And with the uh, half slave, it's because for themselves, right, like, the slave part of themselves cannot be mostly the free part of themselves. Um, or the free part of the other person, sorry. Um, Haga, right, there's a, a gloss. Yeshirim da'afilu et atzmo'enomotzi. Sorry, I was skipping ahead, right? Not only can he not be, can a half-slave not be mozi, another half-slave, because the half-free person can't adhere to the half-slave person, but even himself he can't, because maybe the half-slave part of himself doesn't work. It's a really small man, he has to hear from someone else. Okay. Yeah. Great question. So the way the Shulchan Aruch works, I'm sorry that I did not clarify that. Um, so the Shulchan Aruch that we have basically has two books in one. There's the Shulchan Aruch, written by Rabbi Yosef Karo, um, which is sort of gave the order and whatever, and there's the the glosses are the Ramah, Hagahod HaRamah, they're called. So the Ramah is Rav Moshe Isserlis. The Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo, is, was a Sephardi, Sephardi, I don't know what you're calling decisor, but he ended up living in Israel, but sort of came from the Spanish tradition. Um, North African, maybe. And the Ramah was in Europe. And he was actually originally writing his own code when he found out that the Shulchan Aruch was published, he sort of what he ended up doing was just writing down the places where he disagreed, where Ashkenazi practice disagreed, um, potentially. So, like, the sh- our Shulchan Aruch has, you know, the sh- Rabbi Yosef Karo's words, and then sort of interspersed, it has these little things that are introduced with Hagah, which basically means gloss, and then he says what he says. Um, and they are in different fonts, so that's why I put them in italics here, but in the regular Shulchan Aruch, they'll also be in a different font. So, what do we follow? Um, well, it depends who we are. Those of us who are Ashkenazi generally follow the Ramah over the, sh- the Shulchan Aruch. Um, but those of us who are not Ashkenazi almost never do, right? Like, um, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, right, so this whole thing of Lishma Megillah, right, I think it would not be a thing for Spartan at all. I mean, I, I, would be sh- like, I think Ramavadia probably doesn't say that, for example, when he says that women can read for... I think he thinks that women can read for men anyway. In, in exterminating circumstances, shall we say. Um, okay. So, Hashomer Megillah, this is sort of like one of these funny halachic kind of cases, totally impractical to any of us, but interesting, right? Hashomer Megillah, Mishihu Mudar Hana'ami Menu Yatsa, right? If people sometimes apparently would do things like this, they take a vow that, like, I'm not going to get any benefit from you. If you did that, if I said, I'm not going to get any benefit from you, and then you read the Megillah, I can still be Yotzei. I don't know exactly how that <laughs> It's sort of funny, like, why should that be? I don't know, but you can. Um, מקום שאין מניין, אם אחד יודע והאחרים אינם יודעים, אחד פותר את כולם, right? In a place where there's no minion, this is a separate question, it does reading the Megillah require a minion? It's usually, I don't know if it requires a minion, but it's usually supposed to require a group. That's why, like, you can do it with a group of women, but you're probably not supposed to do it with, like, five women. You should have, right, women can constitute a pseudo-minion, even according to Orthodox Halacha for certain things, and this might be one of them. I don't, don't want to commit too much to that, but I think that's right. Right, but in a place where there's no minion, you have, like, you know, seven people living in the prairie. Um, right? So you might still have one person reading for everyone if only one person knows how to read. Right? Um, like you'll have this sometimes if somebody reads at home for their family. Right? In principle, if you're reading in a small group, everybody should read for themselves, as we'll see, but if only one person knows how to lane, then everybody's going to listen to them. 
Um, but if everybody does know, they should root for themselves. And the last one, right? Right, it is a good tradition, custom, to bring children of both genders to hear the reading of the Megillah. Right. Um, so on that note, right, that's which is sort of right. It, it ties back into what we saw at the very beginning, where he's sort of bringing children in here more than perhaps we usually do. Um, we see, like you know, uh, several hundred years later, the Mishnah Bura has a different opinion. The Mishnah Bura is also known as sorry. Also known as the Chafetz Chaim is Rabbi Yisrael Meir Hakohen Kagan, who lived in like the 19th century, I want to say, um, right, 19th century Europe. So on this last bit about the bringing of children, he's a little bit more skeptical for reasons that we should. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting to what it sounds like. Right, the Shulchan Aruch is not aware of the kind of uh, breaches of decorum that the Mishnah Bura is. It was not experiencing what the Mishnah Bura is experiencing, which we'll see in a minute. So he says, Minhag Tuzlavi, it's a good practice to bring children, right? Why? Kadei Lechamcham, the mitzvot Pirsume Nisa, right? In order to, you know, um, educate them in the mitzvah of publicizing the miracle, which is kind of interesting, right? Because he, he doesn't say in the mitzvah of reading the Megillah, right? So it seems like, Kadei Lechamcham, right there, in general, in sort of early rabbinic texts, you often have the impression that they actually felt like children under bar mitzvah, if they were physically capable of doing something, might be obligated in it. And the later rabbis are always reading it like, oh, it's just an obligation of chinuch. It's just an educatory obligation. It's not that they're actually obligated. So when he says, Kedei l'chan chan it sounds to me kind of like he's saying, like, really, it's just on an educational level. It's not a real mitzvah, but children can participate in publicizing a miracle, right? I haven't heard of publicizing anything but Hanukkah. So is this a common thing that, um, like, what? I think it's not. It is. It is much more associated with Hanukkah. But this is the second time we've seen it with regard to the Megillah. The idea that the Megillah is a form of pursuing Yisa of like okay. publicizing. Reading the Megillah is like publicizing the miracle. We saw it in Tosfot also, um, right? And we times that right. For that reason, because right, we're trying to teach our children, right, this is sort of an interesting, right, in terms of how we read the Megillah, this is one explanation, I'm sure there are others. Why do we have certain sukim that everybody repeats out loud? Right? You think it has to do with it's all for the children. Think of the children. Right? Um, right? Which are sort of like, they're the major sort of turning points along the way of this miracle, the beginning and middle and end. Right, right, there was this Jewish man, Mordechai Atah, and then at the end, Mordechai, like, you know, becomes, actually not the turning point, it's just sort of like the, the beginning and the end, right, of our, interesting, right, the hero of all these Pesukim is Mordechai, right? And that was Um, there's a, well, there's a, as the Jewish reading, which may or may not be happening this year, um, they have, and other places also, they have certain Pesukim, but Esther also, that they have to, there are certain Pesukim about Esther, like, sort of the, um, you know, the term, the major, the major Esther moments in the story are also said out loud. Right, Mordechai said that, like you dream, right? The Jews had happiness. Ki Mordechai for Mordechai was like this great kid. Kedei the Orer Haktanim, right? This is in order to wake up the children, Shalo Yishnu, so they don't fall asleep. Be newly bam al and they'll pay attention to the reading. 
And we read those psukim aloud, meaning like you can't expect your kid to listen to the whole Megillah, but you can expect them to listen to sort of the main points, and then you kind of nudge them when they come along and they pay attention. Right? Which is kind of an interesting sociological observation, I think. Um, well, you know, the Megillah, the kids, is kind of a dicey book, right? I mean, Rabbi Silver always jokes about the fact that, like, these girls dress up as Esther, and they have a beauty pageant, and he's just sickened over that because of what it really meant in the story, this beauty pageant. And it's just, it's a pretty sensitive text. There are things that, you know, when I'm working with teenage kids, and I'll tell them certain things, that happens in the story, they never learned that before. Yeah. And they never made the connection either. You know, that's this beauty contest that they grew up, you know, girls especially dressing up as Queen Esther and Vashti and they're having a beauty contest. They never thought that this was, you know, sex slavery yeah. and now that they're so hip to this idea, it comes into a whole different context. Right. Yeah, I mean, whatever. It's not obvious to me which book of the Torah is not sensitive for children. But, yeah, I think right there is sort of, for all, but also like the whole chapter 89, this whole like killing of everybody is always kind of like, you just yeah. kind of stop before you get to that part of the story. Um, yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, it's not just that it's long, it's also that it's not like, right, they're picking out like the child's front, what they consider the child's front. Right, right. Um, yeah. Easier character than Esther, certainly. Right. Hi. Hello. Oh, sorry. Well, we are. We're about to start Source 7. We have just started Source 7, actually. Okay. Source 7? Or we're in the middle. We're sort of at the bottom. Right, so the, just to catch up for a second, right, so the Shulchanar says that it's a nice practice to bring children. And the Mishnahberg says, well, in fact, like, right, that's why we have this practice of reading certain things out loud. Maybe because they're, either because, like, reading them out loud kind of gets the kids' attention, or maybe these are verses that are more child-appropriate than other things, right? If we want to focus them somewhere, this is a good place. Um, okay, and maybe, you know, like, we read it out loud with the children to help them, right? Makrino time usually means, like, you help them read it. Right. Um, so, right, everybody does say it out loud in order to help the children say it out loud. Um, right? right? So then it says, right, little children, boys and girls, right? Um, the Mishaburah says, so skipping ahead, right? Don't bring two little kids, because they, they confuse everybody, right? They sort of create too much commotion. Um, you know, you already have a sense that, like, he's saying that because people are bringing little babies and they're, like, running around going crazy. Um, okay. So when did the custom of um, spinning a grogger come So, about? I'm not sure about the grogger. We're about to see they already have the custom of noise-making when it comes to Haman. Um, I don't know about, I mean, like, the original custom is, like, clopping. Right. Either like you have Haman written somewhere, you're like hitting something that says Haman or something, but it's not like a noisemaker per se. Although that's at least a few hundred, like 200 years old, I would say. Um, I mean, he might have already known about it. But I think there, it was mostly still like that. Okay, but you know, you can make a lot of noise. I think so. Right. So the Shmoa, right, bring them to here. He says Vachshav. Right. So he says fine. The Shochanah says this is a nice minhag to bring your children to hear the Megillah, but. That is that you're actually hearing the Megillah, right? In our days, with our immense sins. 
right? Which is what you kind of say when you're talking about how your generation is much worse than the previous generations. Nahapahu, right? It's switched, this is a phrase from the Miguel, right? It is switched around. There's a reversal, that, again, another reversal gave them. Shalavaj, she'enam shomim. Not only do the children not listen, Elohim Mabal believe. They're actually creating more commotion. Right? Even the adults came here. The children only come to make noise. And if you bring your kid just to like, you know, hit, make noise for Haman, you're not educating them properly. Club, um, right? You're not doing any sort of education. From the educated perspective, educational perspective. I guess. Right, you have to keep them next to you. and supervise them. make them listen. Right, when they say Haman, then then they can make noise. But that should be the main point. It's not like you're bringing your kids to make a mess and go crazy. You're bringing them to listen, and then when it comes to this time, they can shake. Right, or do whatever. Um, so, right, when somebody goes on this kind of speech, it suggests that, in fact, right, he even says what is actually happening is that, like, this idea of bringing children in is kind of like children have taken over. I mean, the whole practice of, like, making noise or something where you're supposed to hear every single word is itself kind of funny. And it's one of these cases of, like, the antinomian nature of prayer, potentially. Um, right, but, like, there's always, like, a scholar in the class who does not like that. That's how we say. Um, right, and so then what's his, what's his suggestion, right, given the fact that our shows have turned into such like hullabaloos, um, <laughs> right nowadays, right, everybody should have their own kosher Megillah, and you should be whispering to yourself, along with, like, word for word. Because nobody can hear the person who's actually leading. Right, because of all the noise and the commotion when they hit with sticks, and they all, everybody's like whooping or yelling or whatever. Um, everybody should do this. If they're able. And see, see ahead. Right? So it's kind of interesting, right? Because if everybody were doing that, then it wouldn't be necessary. It's like this funny collective action problem, right? So it's, it seems clear to me that he's sort of talking to whatever, his audience is some sort of an elite audience on some level, or the audience, like the either elite or like elite There's in terms of ability, or the people, the right, the people who kind of like, the people who still want to take it seriously, right, some people kind of are like full into this like folk forum, and some people are not, um, so that is just sort of, and but this idea of saying, saying a word for it, either from a kosher Miguel or not, it's still practiced today, right? If you miss a word, you have to hear every word. There are people who like do this, I've done this reading, right? You have to hear every word. If you miss a word, you're supposed to say it out loud to yourself until you catch up with the person or whatever, because also you can't say the word, you can't say them out of order. So you have to keep talking until you're up to the person. Um, anyways, it's like a whole, meaning like the, 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 the experience of reading Megillah like properly can be like a very kind of, tense experience if you want to hear every word and whatever, which is perhaps in contrast to like, very much in contrast to the popular and childhood mm-hmm. experience thereof. Um, so now I just wanted to talk a little bit about this, go back to this idea of Megillah, um, Megillah and prayer, that, that like, the, the, the proof texts for the Megillah are that it's some sort of a prayer. Um, this actually is explicitly discussed in at least one opinion and Megillah 14a, which is source number eight. Um, 
Tanurabanan, right? So our rabbis taught this is some sort of a, it's a Mishnah or a, a Brita. I mean, it's a, it's a Brita, I think. It's um, a Tanaitic source. Arba'im Ushmona Nabi'im, right? There are 48 male prophets, with seven Nabi'od, and seven female prophets, who provided prophecy for Israel. And they never added or subtracted anything from the Torah, i.e. any practices, right? They gave, you know, they gave messages, they gave musr, whatever, but they never changed the way we do things. Um, except for reading the Megillah, which Esther added. Right? Esther is the only prophet who added something to our practice, is the claim, right? My darush, well, what was the source for that? Amar b'chiyah bar amar rabbi Yehoshua ben karcha, Right, she it was sort of she made she did the following deduction, or they in her generation did the following deduction. Right, just as when we moved from slavery to freedom, we said a shira, a song, right, shira hayam. Mimitala chayim lo kolshkein, all the more so when we're physical, when we've actually been saved from death, right? Um, which is sort of interesting because that doesn't obviously explain why you read the Megillah, that would explain why you would say a shira, right? So already we see that the Megillah, reading the Megillah is somehow like saying a shira in this conception, right? And the, so much that the Gemara says, Ihachi halal nami If so, then we should also say halal on this day. Right? Meaning like, if really the whole point of Purim is that we're so happy that we got saved, then we don't, like, it seems strange to say that that's the essence of Purim, if it's not, we don't even say halal on this. Um, so this is the first answer, right? So meaning, if you think about where we are in the Gemara, we said we re- Esther was allowed to add to the requirements of the Torah on some level because it's sort of a natural reaction to being saved. Now we're saying, well, wouldn't a natural reaction to being saved include also saying halal? No, we don't say halal on Neshev Chukalarz, on miracles that occur outside of the land of Israel. This is what they teach you in elementary school always. Why do you say hal on Hanukkah and not on Purim? Because Hanukkah happened in Israel and Purim did not. Right, what's the problem with this formula as it's yeah, stated? It's right, it's Yavi time. Also did not happen in Eretz Israel. Right? Um, it's Yavi time, the Neshev Chukalarz, Hechemin and Shira. So the Gemara says, wait a minute, how can we say Shira, either Hala or Az Yashir even, when we were not in Israel at that time either, Kiditanya as the following writer says, Ad Yisrael right? Before Israel ever went into Eretz Canaan, Eretz Israel, right? Hukshiru kol lamar shira. All, everywhere was a valid place to say shira. Yisrael right? After they entered the land, lo hukshiru kol lamar shira. Right? Then, like, the other places became invalid. So meaning, there was a similar move, right? Before the Beit HaMikdash, you can bring sacrifices everywhere. After the Beit HaMikdash is built, you cannot bring sacrifices everywhere. And after the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, you also can't bring sacrifices everywhere, right? Um, right so that's the first answer is, the reason we don't... We, yeah, you're right, we should say Shira and Purim, except that after we already went into Israel, we can no longer say Shira about miracles that happen outside of Israel. Okay. Second answer, Rav Nachman Amar, Kriyata Zu Halila. Right? Actually, reading the Megillah is halal. Meaning, like, yeah, we should have halal on Purim, but reading the Megillah is a form of halal. Right? Which is similar to what we saw before. It's, and it's, it does not necessarily fit with what we think of as the content, but if you think of sort of like the ethos, maybe it makes more sense. Right? Like the experience, it's like, it's 
like a happy time, right? The, reading the Megillah is a celebration of some sort, right? Um, right? Rava Amar, Rava said to Rav Nachman, basically, Bishlama Hatam, ah, sorry, the Aleph should not be here, Halalu Abdei Hashem, right? This is a, a quote from Halal, right? He's sort of going back to the previous step, right? We said you can't say Shira on Neshe Right? Um, one answer is, sorry, Rabbi is not going to turn one, he's going back to the previous step, right? One answer is, well, you can't say Shira on Neshe outside of Israel after we've already gone into Israel, you could before. Rabbi is saying, well, really, like, you couldn't say Shira for, here's a different story. You can't say Shira for Purim, but you could say for Pesach because Bishlama Hatam, Halalu Abdei Hashem, Below Abdei Pur. Right? The, the phrases in Halal seem like they have to do with Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And it makes sense, right? Because there, when you go from freedom, from slavery to freedom, you can say, We are now servants of God, we're not servants of Paro. Right? Elahata, Halalu Abdei Hashem, Below Abdei Achashverosh. Right? Now we're not, it's not that we really, like, yeah, our lives have been spared, but Akati Abde Achashverashanam, we're still slaves of Achashverash. Right? There's two, two versions here. One is we are still the slaves of Achashverash, one is they were still the slaves of Achashverash. Um, seems to me like this is, in some ways, it's connected to the previous thing, right? This idea of, like, are you in Eretz Israel or not? Robert's sort of taking it to another level. He's saying it's not just that you're not in Eretz Israel. So you're not an Eretz Israel and you're not autonomous, meaning like, it's not just that like, it's not, you know, like there's some technical connection between Halal and Eretz Israel, but like it's not really as good a miracle as you think if at the end of it you're still ruled by Ahasuerus, which is sort of like, you know, I think a very contemporary reading of the Megillah also, right, like, hurrah, hurrah, now what, right, like, you know, we're still there, right, you're still basically where you started. Um, except you were spared from like an even worse fate, right? So like, um, these two reasons that kind of get taken as sort of like two alternatives, right? Rav Nachman and Rav are kind of paired off against each other as to like, why don't we say Halal on Purim, right? One is, actually we do say Halal on Purim, right? That's the Megillah. The other one is, well, we should, Purim is not really worthy of saying Halal um, And I think that that also connects back to like the two ways that you can see Purim. Is Purim is sort of like this absurdist holiday where like yeah it was cool but it's not you know it's, it's not off, it's not really ambiguously positive for us or is Purim like Purim is great Purim is so great that the Megillah itself is like a religious act right um, in terms of like where this goes which of those is the quote unquote halacha right it's funny when you have two things like this first of all what does it matter which of them is the halacha. Right. Can anyone think of this possibility as to why you would need to decide whose opinion we follow? Right. The halacha always likes to say, right, there has to be some practical ramification to which it can be picked. Right. If you're asking, if you're asking a totally theoretical question, halacha as such doesn't really care about the answer. Right. Um, so that there are in fact several quasi-practical questions that maybe hinge on this. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, right. So the, the Rambam says, he talks about Halal. So first of all, he has one sort of section for the laws of Megillah and Hanukkah. Where he's talking about Halal and Hanukkah. And he says, right? They're in fact not just on Hanukkah, but they're in fact 18 days during the year when you have to say Halal. Um, I think 
usually need to say full halal as opposed to the half halal that we have on Rosh Chodesh and the end of Pesach. Beiluhim, these are they. Shmonat Chag, right? The eight days of Chag, meaning anyone Sukkot. Don't worry. His his his. He doesn't. He would never say eight days of Pesach because he's talking about. Um, but yeah, right. So Chag always means the Chag, like Chag without anything else, is always Sukkot in rabbinic literature. Ushmonakim Chanukah, right? The eight days of Chanukah. That's sixteen. Rishon Shal Pesach, right? The first day of Passover is the only day of Pesach where there's full halal. The Yom Atzeret and Shavuot. Atzeret is the sort of rabbinic name for Shavuot. Um, Aval, but Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim, right? These other possible holidays are not in Bahen Halal. They have no halal. Lefish Tehen Yimei Tshuva, Ve'Yirav Afachad, Ve'Lo Yimei Sifchai Yitera, right? Halal is like for happy days, and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are not happy days. They're like the if you will, right? Below Tiknu Halal the Purim, and why did not they not make Halal on Purim? Right. So what are the possible answers he could give here? He could say because it happened outside of Israel. He could say because the Megillah is already Halal, or he could say because Purim is not really worth celebrating because we're still subjugated to Achashverosh. Right. So which does he choose? Shekriyat Megillah he Halal. Right. Rambam seems to take the opinion that in fact the reading of the Megillah is some sort of Halal. Right. So far good. Um, the Meiri, who is post-Rambam, I assume he had the Rambam, um, t- speaks about this on our Gemara, and he, he gives one example of something that might be, why it might matter which reason you accept for why there's no Purim on Hala. No, no Hala on Purim, excuse me. Davar Yaduahu, she'en omrim Halal b'Purim. Right? Everybody knows you don't say Hala on Purim. Aval ta'amiyato nechlaku alav b'Gemara. Right? But the reason why you don't say halal on Purim is the subject of a dispute in the Gemara. One of them, we know that Rav Nachman says that actually reading the Megillah is a form of halal. Right? Right? Let's say you find yourself stranded on Purim with no Megillah. Well, then halal is a substitute. You should, in fact, say halal. Um, right. Um, because the only reason you're not saying halal is because you're reading the Megillah. So if you're not reading the Megillah, you should say halal. Is there any other, is that a necessary conclusion, by the way? If you say that the Megillah takes the place of halal, does that mean that any individual stranded would need to say halal if they don't have a Megillah? Well, it just seems totally bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it does. Yeah. Okay. Theoretically, if you pull that argument forward, that would be the logical outcome. But do you read the Megillah? You don't think that it reads like Halal. Right. Meaning, like, it totally—it does seem to change the experience of the day. Yeah. I, I guess I'm like also like in terms of technically, you can explain it as like they're not saying that for every individual, it's either one or the other. When Rav Nachman says, right, Kriyatav Zohi Zohi. Halela, right? He's not saying that like it's one or the other for every person. He's saying like the institution of Purim chose the Megillah root in lieu of the Halal root, mm-hmm. and like therefore any individual, it's not like any individual can just substitute Halal for Megillah. But he's saying sort of like on the grand policy level, they're somehow interchangeable, right? So this is what that one criticism of the area is possible not to me here, right? So the area thinks, I think, I'm not sure if there's anybody who actually thinks it's a halacha, it's certainly not like the general halacha that you should say halal if you don't have a, 
um, a Megillah, but it's sort of an interesting idea as to why would it matter if that was the reason, right? Mikolakom tamacher nem raba, big mara, right? The mirror says, but there's actually another reason in the Gemara. Behu mipnesha adayin abdeya hashverosh hayu, right? They were still subjugated to hashverosh, but lo yatsumi abdu the chayrut. Right? They were not, they didn't actually go from freedom to slavery to freedom. Ve'ein lashon abdei Hashem nofel ela benes she'efshav lomarbo abdei Hashem levav. Right? You only say abdei Hashem, halalu abdei Hashem in halal when you're talking about a situation where you can say you have to serve only God. Kigon nation at time, like in Egypt. Abdei Hashem below abdei paro. Right? Like that's the whole point of leaving Egypt is that you serve God and not paro. But in this situation, since they still served Achashverosh, they still served Achashverosh. It's interesting because this kind of undermines Esther's original rationale. Right? The original rationale presented in the Gemara is like, well, we can include something new because right, if you can say a shira when you go from slavery to freedom, all the more so when you go from death to life. And here it's saying like, well, actually not. It's a little bit different. It's not the same kind of are they saying that celebration? Yeah. Are they saying that Persia is different than any other place in the diaspora? I don't think so. Okay. Um, it's no. Just Galu. Right. Um me she'en biadom megillah eno korei et halal. Right. Even if you don't have a megillah, you still wouldn't say halal according to this opinion. Rishon nira yoter. Right. The Meiri also likes the first reason that the megillah is a form of halal. Right. Similar to the Rambam. Um, right, and then he says something kind of interesting, not also not necessarily practical, but interesting. Right, what they said in the Gemara that before, right, the reason you could say halal at this the Red Sea outside of Israel is because they had not yet gone into Israel, but after that, all the other areas kind of became not okay for halal. Um, Right, you're not like the other places become disqualified from Hallel as long as right you could be in Israel and you're not basically right. So that the Jews of Achashverosh's time right they could have been in Israel they weren't or maybe maybe they could have been in Israel right. So um, right so they they can't say a full Hallel there which is in some ways that's connected to the idea they're still subjugated to Achashverosh where they have an alternative. Right? But after they were exiled, they go back to their original heter. This is like for saying Shira anywhere. This is kind of hard to understand because Esther does take place during one of the exiles. But he seems to be saying like that, you know, the more the second exile is more sort of complete, more final, more there's something worse about it that like I mean, it, it sounds like he's trying to defend the possibility of saying halal for something that happens in his day, even if it's not in Israel, because nobody could be in Israel, right? Um, it's sort of interesting that he adds that on, I think. So, I guess just sort of briefly, I don't know what happened to my little piece of paper where I wrote all this stuff down. But um, there are sort of certain discussions. Where did it go? There it is. Um, right. A few, just a few things, right, in terms of. Yeah, um, a few things that come out from this Hallel thing. First of all, um, right? Some I read somewhere that this, in the name of Russell Winstick that like maybe part of the reason you say Sheikh during the day is because the mitzvah has an added component of Hallel now, 
Um, but Hallel, we read elsewhere in Megillah that Hallel only ha- Hallel is during the day in general, right? So like the day, if, if Megillah is Hallel, it's probably only, potentially only the daytime Megillah, right? Um, that's sort of a strange explanation because you don't normally say a bracha on Hallel. Well, you do, but um, you don't say Shechianu on Hallel. If you don't know if it's Shekhyanu and Halal, then the fact that the Megillah now has a Halal component should not require you to say Shekhyanu necessarily, but I mean, you can get around that by saying, like, it's changed the whole nature of the whole thing or something, I don't know. Um, so that's just sort of one thing. Um, another possible thing that matters whether you see the Megillah as Halal or not is whether you have to stand, um, which we don't. Right. But there, there is potentially, like, some thought that maybe you would have to. Um, and there's people take this also in both directions when it comes to women, right? Some people say, right, so the baseline is, right, we're not sure whether women have an obligation to hear Megillah at the very least, we're not sure if it's the same as men. A. B, the daytime Megillah reading is hollow, right? So then you can go, some people will say, well, since the daytime Megillah reading has this extra component, which women maybe are not obligated in, so women are more likely to be able to read for men at night than during the day. With read one for men? Read for men, yeah. Right. The other, the other way of doing it is, well, during the day, women and men have the same obligation because women are also obligated in hall, but maybe at night there's some different aspect of it. There's also the whole separate thing as to whether, if the Megillah has an aspect of the war. This is sort of, I think, where the real house will come in. This is, I believe, from the Bahag, though. I did not re-research this since I did this. Um, the Bahag is sort of an, a Gaonic source. Sometimes it sort of comes up with stuff that doesn't seem to be in the Gemara, but it's very early, so he gets to do that. Um, this idea that the daytime reading is part of the war against Amalek in some way, and that's why it's like, you know, men go to war and not women, so that's why that reading is for... Is, that's why men have more of an obligation in the daytime reading. Men have more of an obligation in the daytime According to some opinions, right, because it's part of a war against Amalek. Did Amalek attack us during the day? Um, we don't know that, but I think there's no reason to assume otherwise. You That's think usually what done it at night because the whole idea is to catch you when you're at your most vulnerable. Right. You know? Except that I think I mean I think it was the people that were at the most vulnerable. Yeah. Meaning like, but right. It was right. hard for them also to fight at night, right? They didn't have like night vision right. goggles. Right. It was sort of not a thing that people really did. You know, you might like go on a little raid right. or something, but I don't think we really had battles at night in, in Tanakh for that reason. Meaning about till whatever, a hundred years ago, they didn't really have battles at night. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I mean, that's not so strange, like this whole, maybe, I don't know, it's just like a totally different form of like fighting than we're used to, but where like, you know, everything kind of shuts down and then you pick up again in the morning, like. That was all of life, right? Electricity. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's just kind of interesting. Um, and there's one more point about the Shekhyanu, right? So as I mentioned, right, the Shekhyanu, so it's what said, well, you say, if the daytime is the main mitzvah, maybe it has this extra component, whatever, you say Shekhyana during the day again. Svarim don't, but one sort of way to justify saying it is, well, you're saying it for this and for all the other mitzvot of the day. Right, so people say, you should have in mind, when you say Shekhyana, when they say Shekhyana for the Megillah, it's also for whatever other mitzvot you're doing that day. You know, the Suda, the Shalach Manoah, Machinah, the name.